0: Welcome to Be the Best You. I'm your host, Luke Briggs. Today, we've got an interview with celebrity personal trainer Mark Jenkins. In the episode, we talk about what it was like for Mark growing up in the 1980s in Brooklyn, New York, in a drug infested area, and how he overcame the challenges of being teased and bullied, being overweight in high school. He transformed his life and body after enrolling in the Navy and he soon after got the opportunity to become a personal trainer to help others change their bodies as well. Mark then shares how he became the trainer to a number of A-list celebrities, including P Diddy, LL Cool J, and Beyonce. In the second part of the episode, we have an important conversation about racism, as Mark shares many of the experiences he's had with racism over the years. From success to social justice, We discuss a wide range of topics, so you're definitely going to want to tune into this episode. And if you get any value out of this episode, please, please, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a five-star review so we can reach more people. Now sit back and enjoy this episode with Celebrity Trainer Mark Jenkins. All right, today we've got Celebrity Trainer Mark Jenkins on the podcast. So over the course of his career, Mark has worked with many well-known superstars, including Beyonce, LL Cool J, P. Diddy, Missy Elliott, Mary J. Blige, Busta Rhymes, D'Angelo, DJ Khaled, Johnny Cochran, Tyler Perry, list could go on. Uh, He's also the author of The Jump Off, 60 Days to a Hip Hop Hard Body. Mark is the owner of Universal Wellness, a universal fitness and wellness company and a whole host of other things as well. Um, he's also a war veteran, formerly serving in the United States Navy. Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me, appreciate it. What's going on? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, Mark's out in, out in LA and we are just talking that things are a little different there right now with everything going on, huh? Yeah, uh, it's pretty
1: dead out here, man. Not too much going on in the streets. Uh, you know, um, I just got back, I was in a desert uh, Palm Springs the last two or three months and uh sitting out the corona um
0: just got back to la and uh not too much happening here yeah yeah definitely it's it's you know june 2020 a lot of depending on when you're listening to this definitely different it, you know it's nice days it's like desolate outside it's interesting <laughs> no doubt definitely definitely a little bit different but uh yeah um You know, I'm excited to have Mark on the show today because he's someone who's overcome a lot of challenges in his life to get to where he is today. So Mark, I definitely want to get more into how you started working with celebrities and building your personal brand. But I first want to start from the beginning when you grew up in Brooklyn, New York. So take me through what were things like for you as a child? (laughs) As a child, um, my dad died when I was two.
1: All right, so we had a stepdad in the home who was uh, drank a lot. And uh, my mom didn't know what to do with a male child, so my sister and I, we went to dancing school. You know, I took uh, tap, jazz, ballet, modern, and uh, gymnastics in dancer school uh, most of my formative years. In Brooklyn, um, was a pretty quiet kid, you know, um, and then um, that was... Cool, I made me tap dance for eight years, ballet for eight, nine years. So I was, I got pretty accomplished dancing. My sister went on and danced with Ellie. and you know, she got injured and stopped dancing. But she was, you know, we were pretty much into the dancing thing. Um, then I got into the end of junior high, high school, and uh, people found out I was dancing, so I started to get bullied, so I stopped dancing. And um, my family being West Indian, within a year, I was uh, sucking in my stomach. (laughs) You know, and then in two years, I had maybe a 45-inch waist, 40-inch waist going through uh, high school. Mm. So, uh, you know, um, like I said, I was getting bullied, running home from school in Brooklyn. Uh, That was in the 80s. That was when you were walking to school, stepping over crack vials, you know, Mm. to give you a scenario of what the 80s were like, a lot of people don't know. (laughs) <laughs> Excuse me, I'm wearing around. so, you know, you're walking on your way to school, stepping over crack vials, you know. Uh, we might have played Kick the Dead Body once or twice, you know, going to school in Brooklyn uh, during the 80s, stuff like that, just to paint the picture for you. And so, me being overweight, I knew I wasn't going to survive and getting bullied every day. So one, that one day, I walked past the uh, naval recruiter, and I was like, man, I could get out the Navy. I could go in the Navy, I could get out the hood, and I could get in shape at the same time. You know, at first I wasn't thinking about the Navy. I just was thinking about the military. You know, I said, oh, this is a good opportunity. My mom had just um, sent my sister to uh, Penn State and bankrupted herself at the time. So there wasn't any money for me to go to college, you know, so I had to make a decision pretty much anyway. And so uh, I walked into the recruiter, And I'm like, yo, you know, uh, I want to get into the military. I tested high on the the test. I scored pretty decent, so all the branches were interested. But me being overweight, you know, I knew there's no way I could survive the uh, Marines. (laughs) (laughs) I knew I couldn't survive survive the Army. I might have been fat, but I was smart. So I said, it got to be between the Air Force and the Navy, right? So the recruiter goes, the Navy recruiter, he goes, yo. You know, you should really join the Navy. They have McDonald's on the aircraft carrier, and I was like, "Where is son? They got McDonald's on the aircraft carrier?" And fucking sign up and join the
0: Navy. Love it. Yeah. Uh, so you, <laughs> <laughs> when, when you were told they have a McDonald's on board, that is what drew you. To
1: that was the, that was the deciding factor between the Navy and the Air Force. But you know, the guy, you know, those guys—they're so good at reading people after recruiting for so many years. They was like, "Uh, overweight oh, kid. Uh, I turned they got McDonald's on the shit. I said, yeah. he said, yeah, you can see the world. And they have McDonald's, man. You're going to feel like you're just at home. I was like, well, I, I, OK, I'll I do the Navy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <There> you <go. laughs>
1: well, you guys all 17, 18, you know?
0: Right. Right. So and, um, you, you joined the Navy. So so yep. you went from an active kid <laughs> who, like you said, you were a dancer. And then you started getting bullied and teased about it as you got dancing, to. Dancing. So I stopped house. dancing. And then, you know, I
1: really didn't, I didn't have any, I couldn't play basketball. I didn't have any sports skills because I was dancing the whole time. So I tried to participate, but, you know, I didn't have any skill level. By the time you were in high school, you're not getting picked if you
0: never played before. Sure.
1: You know what I mean? So there you go.
0: (laughs) There you go. So now your your mindset and lifestyle and probably just identity has completely changed. So take us through, like, what it's like to to shift your identity because I think a lot of people can relate to this. You start off as someone who is very fitness oriented, very active to now all of a sudden you're overweight, you're getting teased. Like t- what was the mindset like for you at that point when you, when you well, switched I, from an active to overweight? I think and- a
1: lot of people, I don't, I don't even think you switch. I think that there's somebody inside of each person, you know? And, uh, Once they feel physically confident about themselves, they're freely able to express that. So I don't think you switch as opposed as you just stop believing, you know, and then the weight training gives you something tangible that you can say, okay, if I apply something, I can see something tangible happening, then I can build off of that and, you know, that person comes out, you know, that was always in there. That's one of the things that I love about training people, you know, is just to see that, you know, I've been addicted to that feeling. I've been training people for a long time, since 1992, 93. And the feeling of watching, seeing that person come out that was inside and then them using that to take the next step in their lives, that is the impactful thing that keeps me uh, excited about training people
0: for all these years. Love it, right? You've experienced it yourself, and now that's something that
1: you Yeah, are- Yeah, so, you know, it was uh, – a. So it wasn't, it was like, you know, I, I always knew, I knew, you know, how to use my body. I grew up using my body. Then all of a sudden, I wasn't using my body. I didn't have any body awareness. I started smoking cigarettes. I was drinking 40s. You know, terrible condition for a young kid, man.
0: Yeah. So, you know, you were making some choices that obviously, you know, right now you, you can see that. Well, then, not- you know,
1: then it turns into a self esteem thing at that age. Then you're
0: getting teased, you're
1: fat, you can't get any girls. Drink, you rebel, you know, you eat. I used to get my allowance and go buy food, you know.
0: Yeah, I'm sure completely different. So I used to get off my
1: job at that time. I was working bagging groceries, you know, which was the worst thing. I was working in Keepa in the supermarket. Yeah, stuff like that, bad patterns. So, you know, I, I joined the military uh, and just made a decision like, you know, I didn't want to live the rest of my life like that. I knew there was somebody there, you know, it was there earlier. I lost it, you know, let me see if I can try to get it back, you know? Not, not consciously, but, you know, as a retrospective,
0: you look back at it and you see it. Yeah, totally. So now you've joined the Navy. You're, as, as you said, you're overweight. You don't necessarily have a ton of confidence. So how do you get through this training?
1: I had a friend of mine before uh, I joined and he was actually a Marine. And he was like, listen, I'm going to take your ass in the park and we're going to run at least. You got to be able to run two, three miles before you get in there. man. And, you know, uh, so we Prospect Park in Brooklyn. I think it's 3.2 miles. And I don't think I ever finished it with him. (laughs) (laughs) But he took me out there and I never actually completed the the 3.2 in that span. But he tried and he was like, oh, man, good luck, man. He goes, just don't quit. And, you know, so I got in there and suffered because, you know, I couldn't even do a, I came to do three push-ups, you know. Uh, but luckily, a Navy boot camp isn't all that extreme, so um, you know I I, I didn't quit. I, I didn't quit. So a lot of times, you know, I threw up, you know, shit on myself in runs, terrible condition, you know. But I, I didn't quit, and I made it out in time. I didn't get set back, you know. I just sucked it up. But you know, anybody who takes a will who takes the Navy boot camp, they'll tell you it's not you know it's not like Navy SEALs or anything. But for me, in that type of condition, it was like the Iliad. It was like <laughs> You yeah. know It was like the hardest thing I had ever done in my life. Like, you know, I was crying uh, the first day, uh, I think, I got off the bus. I knew, I was like, oh, my God, this is a mistake. Once they shaved off my flat top, I knew it was a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: knew it was going to be different at that point. So, yeah, I knew
1: it was going to be different. I knew it was going to be different.
0: So from there, you knew it was going to be different. So you got through training. I barely
1: made it through. They sent me to um, uh aviation school in Meridian, Mississippi. Uh, this is 1988, 89. Now, mind you, uh, just to put things in perspective back then, you know, uh, they had a sign on the base at that time saying, if you're black and you leave the base, you're on your own, because the KKK was in Meridian, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So just to put it in perspective where – Representing the country, soldiers for the country, who cannot leave the base because you are not getting protected by the government <laughs> mm. to walk freely amongst the people. Yeah. And just to put it in context, so this is, you know, so yeah, I was on this base and I saw this buff dude and I was like, "Yo, dude, I want to look like you, man. Can you work out with me?" And he was like, "Oh, man, you know, why would I want to train with you?" And I said, "Dude, I just want to see my feet in the shower. I still had a gut, I still had man boobs, but I had lost a lot of weight in the boot camp." But no, you know, I wasn't hitting any weights. I wasn't firm at all. Sure. And I was like, you know I, you know, I just wanted to be able to see my feet in the shower. And I trained with this guy and he pretty much showed me how to lift. You know, it was my first time in the gym weight training, you know, but those guys were, you know, extremely hardcore. You know, it was a military gym. Sure.
2: <laughs> so,
1: you know, they were punching each other in the stomach as they were squatting, smacking each other before the lifting. You know, I'm totally, and not only that, am I out of shape, but I'm coming from a dancing, Background. So I don't know nothing about this contact and hitting right. it, all of this stuff. I just know I want to get in shape. So it's totally a, a brand new thing for me. But I'm loving it. I'm seeing changes happening to my body. You know, I'm standing up straighter. I'm able to look people in the eye. You know, I'm starting to get attention from girls, which I was never able to get before. So it was uh, really a life changing experience for me. That was like really my late awakening was like maybe from a uh, I mean, the whole military experience. I joined when I was 17, 18, I got out when I was 20, 21. Yeah, we was just turning 18. So that was that was a whole, you know, awakening for me, like an empowerment thing.
0: And I know from there, you said after that happened, you, you now have, like, 22 inch arms yeah like a 29 inch waist like you go
1: yeah so you know I always saw myself as a fat guy so I was always overcompensating so you know I started reading and then I started following the bodybuilders you know and following like you know my guy was always Sean Ray you know I always appreciated the symmetry as well as the uh as as the mass and the definition you know but I you know I had every magazine, Flex, Muscle Mag, I was reading the books, you know, I was, I was reading a lot of Paul Check stuff, just trying to get knowledgeable. You know, at the time, they didn't have many supplements, they had Cybergenics out. I was using that, anything to put on a size, and I trained uh, within a, maybe a year and a half, two years of training, and I'm talking about training to failure, like, you know, literally getting smacked, squatting, getting hit, get it up again, get the weight <laughs> <laughs> you know, like a raw, like real trader, you know what I mean? Yeah, at the end of that, I had a. I, 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 within a year and a half, I hit maybe 32 inch thighs, 29 inch waist, uh, 22 inch arms. Maybe walking around 240, 245, maybe 10, percent body fat. <laughs>
0: Wait, you know, a life, changing. <laughs> life changing, life changing. Absolutely. So at this point, like you said, like now all of a sudden, like you're get, you're getting attention from girls. Like you're you're big, you're Jack. And I know at that point you had mentioned um, that you started training people. Like people saw your transformation. They're like, "Hey, help me do this." So take me through, like, how you trans you went from. Yeah, I had a couple of guys, the- uh,
1: you know, because if you're overweight in the military, they will kick you out, you know. And a lot of these guys are married, you know, and they need those benefits and they need the job, you know. Because a lot of times you get specialties that are not applicable any place else but the military. So you might be an expert in what you're doing, but very difficult to get a job once you get out. <clears throat> you know, there's no um, tanks and shit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or <yeah>. everything <laughs> <season laughs> in the regular world, you know what I mean? So sometimes it's difficult. So uh, this one guy in particular, uh, they were going to kick him out and I trained him and he got in such good shape. I just became the go-to guy, you know, for uh, getting people in shape or about to get kicked out or had a problem, you know who were overweight or who just wanted to get in shape. So I ended up training quite a bit of people in my off time and spare time. They just thought it was useless information, but just applied, you know, in combination with the initial guy showed me. And then when I studied and then I got so much into the bodybuilding, I even did a show. I did a show uh, when I was in the military, uh, Fresno State. And that's when I learned about steroids. <laughs> because I came in like 250, you know, 29 inch waist, whatever. And I didn't even get a call out, dude, you know, and I might've got down to 6% body fat, you know, but which is nothing when you don't have the diuretics and the, all the other shit, you know yeah. when, you know i I didn't even get a call out. And I just kept asking those guys, what are you, what kind of workout are you doing? What kind of workout are you doing? I want to do that workout. They all started laughing, man. It's like, I go Tijuana, man, get the, shit. get the shit. What's the shit? And then they started telling me, man. And that's when I was like, Oh, wow. And then that, was when I ended my bodybuilding career I said you know what let me start getting more into cardio
2: <laughs>
1: and jumping rope and trying to mix it up but that was pretty much the end you know I actually went to uh Tijuana and got a whole bunch of shit but I could never mess with the needles when I looked at it I was like oh my god I can't you know and then that was the end of my bodybuilding shit because for me as 6'2 as they told me at Fresno State I would have to be 300 and then diet down, they hit 280, they hit the stage. And I'm like, "Ah, you diet, get up to 300, 320? Like, yeah, you're 6'2", no bodybuilders compete. You know, I I went there 250, thought I was looking good. This guy's 5'8", 250.
2: (laughs) So, you know,
1: that was a a rude awakening for me. But, you know, just interesting, you know, because the whole fitness world was new to me. So I'm just giving you my first experiences and, you know, what I saw.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So now you're you decided that <laughs> bodybuilding's not for you. Obviously, a lot of other stuff involved. So how did you then go and start training people?
1: I got out the military. We finished the Gulf. The Gulf War broke out at that time. So you know, most of the time I was on an aircraft carrier from uh, eighty-eight to ninety-two because uh, we were there as Desert Storm, as Desert Shield, and then it turned into Desert Storm. We're there. We got trapped there, a landmined, we couldn't get out. And then we couldn't leave until the fleet came to rescue us in there, we were just on cruise. So we went through the whole desert ship we were there before that, on the um, uh, Independence and the uh, USS Constellation. And so um, I thought it was useless information. You know, most of my time, I have more sea time than most people who are in there eight years, just because the war broke out, because they usually don't put you at sea. So I had had enough with the military (laughs) of being on the ship and the war. So I got out and I was like, okay, I got the GI Bill. You know, I can use the money to go to school. And I thought I was going to be a civil rights activist because of uh, all the discrimination that I actually saw in the military. Interestingly (laughs) enough. And then, uh, you know, I started, um, I got a job in the post office. Right, and I got the most expensive membership I could get in this fancy gym called the Vertical Club in uh, Manhattan. And I um, mind you, I'm 250 because I wanted to maintain my conditioning. You know, that was my main thing. I'm not I'm not going to get out of shape and come out here as a civilian, you know, because I put so much in to get my body back. So I got the best membership, the best gym I could find. And uh, boom, they're giving me extra mail because I'm so much bigger than everybody else in the post office. But I'm getting paid the same money. So I'm like, oh, my God, this is size discrimination, man. So I was telling the gym owner, I said, yo, man, I'm so tired from the post office, the ODM with the box. So the just breaking down trucks and stuff. And, you know, the mail never ends, man. And we were at, like, the headquarters in uh, Manhattan. And I was like, yo, I'm breaking down twice the trucks, man, but I'm getting paid the same money. And the guy was like, listen, I'll give you a job, man. You seem to know what you're talking about, about lifting. Why don't you go get certified? And I'll give you a job, personal training. And I had never thought about it. It, had never, it never occurred to me because I was either gonna use my uh, aviation uh, degrees I had in the military to go work with planes, which I never used. Like I told you, you get, these, you get these specialties. I've never used anything with aviation ever again. You know what I mean? But I, I know a little bit about an FET. Tell you a little bit. But, um, you know, uh, I, I, I'm in there, I get the certification and I get the job and I quit the post office and then I'm working in the gym which paid, I think, $8 an hour for the floor and $15 an hour for a private session. But I'm doing something that I love and uh, that I know how to do. I think so. I think I know at that point anyway, but my
0: my system is still developing. <clears throat> right, so now you've gone from, like you said, you're carrying twice the mail, you're like, you know, what, what's going on here? He's like, well, let Let's start personal training, and now you now you're into this, so now, from here, how do you go from starting up in personal training, you know tra- probably training some you know regular everyday Joe's to all of a sudden training celebrities? So
1: coincidentally, the gym happens to be <clears throat> in Midtown Manhattan. Disney is in the same complex, Motown's in the same complex It's right in the heart of all of this stuff, you know so all of these business people and high-level executives are going to this gym. So I tell you, it was one of the most exclusive <laughs> gyms in the. And, and I was using all of my money to pay for this membership. Everything I have, like, totally broke. I have no money, but I have the best membership, you know, in the most exquisite gym. And so um, these people are coming there. I'm working now. I'm working in the gym. The guy gives me a job, and I start training them and start talking to people. And I'm like, "Hey, what are you doing?" They're like, "Oh, well, you know, I'm executive in this company." Executive in this company. And I was like, "Wow, that's interesting, but I could never get the key people that I needed to talk to, I thought, to help me to actually train with me. You know, a lot of times they had other trainers, <laughs> they're working with somebody else, the clients I had. I was working floor times, so I couldn't really talk to the person because I was on the floor. So you know, I was like, man, what to do? So then I just started applying techniques that I learned in the military. and uh, you know, so, Anybody who had on an expensive suit or nice shoes, I figured they had money. They might have been executive. So I'd offer a free session. I said, hey, I train you for free. And like, really? You train me for free? What do you want? I said, I just want to go to lunch with you. And then, um, you know, I train them three or four times a week for free. And then they take me for a lunch. And then in the lunch, I'd ask them what they do and just take notes. You know, you recon. Yeah. Well, you're not in the military. So I started right. doing uh, surveillance. I looked at the suits. <laughs> and then I started doing recon. What do you do? And then I would ask them, I said, hey, man, if you had a fitness company, are you trying to launch a fitness business, you know, how would you do it? Mm. And they would say, hey, man, well, nobody knows you. You got to get pictures of yourself. I said, well, you no, know, I don't have any money. I'm living in the projects. I'm so broke. I'm living in the projects now at this time. Mm. Uh, you know, and they would say, well, you got to train a photographer for free. And I would train a photographer for free. And then they would, I have the pictures and I'd go back and I would say, well, you know, you got to get them in a the magazine. You got to train a publicist for free. So you know, it would take year, It would take months and years to actually meet the people to train for free. But I just had this long-term plan. And again, this is stuff that I learned in the military because I would see how they put it together, you know. Mm-hmm. And then you know, 17 being in there four years, you know, by the time I was 19, you know, by the time you're 19, 20, you're in charge to 300 people. You have leadership capabilities. You're learning. You have people mentoring you. So it's a it was a great environment for me as a young kid getting out the hood, probably saving my life,
0: and then learning, you know? Wow, that, that's incredible. So for you to really build yourself up, like a lot of people think like, oh, I'm not gonna work with someone, they don't pay me, I have to make money now. Like, you came at this with a well, long-term view. Like, well, not only was you- I doing
1: that, I had the long-term strategy, I was living in the projects, right? I, I would, there was no internet, there was no, this is back then, back in the day. I would photocopy, Fifty each articles of every nutrition article I thought was important from every magazine. Put it in my backpack and give it out to every client in the gym every month. Wow! Right? And for every client that I trained, I had a free water for them that I would pay for. Now mind you, I'm living in projects, I had no money, so I would have to jump over the turnstile to get back home from working all day. So I didn't have any money to pay for train.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I subsisted on. From 1994 to 2000, I ate um, Uncle Ben's brown rice, frozen vegetables, and mackerel in the projects, and that's what I divided into my daily meal. I would scramble some eggs and throw them in there for my protein and diet content and uh, protein
0: shakes, because I had no money, (laughs) but I had to get my groups, and that's how I did it. So and I, I hear this thrown around a lot. When you don't have the resources, you get resourceful. and Clearly, that's you what you did.
1: Well, you know, you can do it. You just got to want it. You just have to want to do it, you know? I mean, you can do it, and it's just like, you know, how much are you willing to absorb? But I knew from the military, again, that and because I was doing it, I said, the more I do it, the more years that I'm in the trenches doing this, once I reach the tipping point, it's going to be exponential because – I had so many resources and trained so many people for free. I'm in the middle of Manhattan training millionaires and movers and shakers for eight years for free. Wow. So once I broke through, I already had my infrastructure. I could call, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. So now you, you've you been doing all this stuff for free for years. So like you said, you, you really like had a long-term plan. Like you knew this is something that you were committed to and wanted to do. So at this point, you have a ton of experience. So how at this point do you really start like building your brand, getting your name out there to attract these type of celebrities and superstars?
1: Uh, I have a breakthrough. And also too, a lot of the people who I was training were Motown record executives. So uh, it was there were a couple of key clients. One was uh, a lady who was Brandy's publicist. I got a lot of weight off of her in a short amount of time. She said, hey, would you like to train Brandy? And I was like, yeah, man, you know how much And know she was like they were like $70 I think And I was like oh my god 10 sessions that's seven I'm rich you know because I'm working in the projects but you know uh and Brandy at the time was like I don't know super young might have been 12 13 14 something like that but she was doing the Moesha show <clears throat> and um uh basically she was growing too fast looking too old and uh too quick Mm-hmm. and uh, I was like, what are you eating? She's like, pop fried chicken, and I was like, oh, stop eating the chicken. You know, eat some salads, case closed. Young girl, you know what I mean? Here's a little workout, uh-huh. training. And then uh, I think I might have trained her uh, seven or eight times, and then she went to California to start filming, because she was recording, doing music, and films. She was in New York doing the music.
2: Then mm-hmm.
1: she got the show, and then um, she left, and I was like, wow, man. I could, You know? I could really make a living. That was 70. I said, man, if I could get 10 clients, if I could get five clients doing that, I could actually make a living doing this because I'd still not considered it like, wow, I could actually, that was like the breakthrough moment with the celebrities. And then it was so much, it was so much disparity in the gym because I was paying so much money to go to this gym. There weren't that many black people in the gym and it was a big fitness disparity. And I noticed that, you know, I was one of the few that was in there actually training, you know? And, um, I said, man, if I could target, start targeting celebrities, I can not only make more money, but I could influence the culture and get black people in shape if I target these black artists. Mm -hmm. And that, that was really like the breakthrough moment for me. I was like, you know, okay, so let me, so I got her in shape. I had another guy, um, a slim dude. I put some masks on him and, uh, he was D'Angelo's publicist and he was like, Hey man, I got a client of mine. I want to get him from behind the um, piano or whatever, you know, and I can really think he's a breakthrough artist. We should work with him. And I went to my other client uh, who was the CEO of a apparel company. And I said, Hey man, I think this is it, man. I think this is a good opportunity. You know, how much money should I ask for, you know, to get him in shape? And they was like, you know, you should ask for $30,000 for the month right? The CEO guy told me, and I was like, really? There's no way, man. And he was like, do I tell you how to train? I was like, no. He's like, don't tell me my job, man. He's goes, tell me you're going to give him the money back if you don't like the results, but you got to get him in shape. Yeah. And um, went to Motown. I had 30 grand. They gave me 30 grand. Actually got it. Wow. And I quit the job at the gym and incorporated myself uh, like my guy told me. Uh-huh. And made sh- and I followed D'Angelo around night and day. Slept in front of his hotel, checked in the studio, you know, and uh, like my life depended on it, which it did. I had no money management, so I was probably broke in like two, three weeks. <laughs> 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 I broke again. But um, uh, at the end of uh, 60 days, the result was the untitled video. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh,
1: you know D'Angelo, how does it feel video with no yep. shirt on? And that was the breakthrough that then I was training Mary, at the same time this is happening, I was training Mary J. Blige's a and barber for a year for free. And then I got to the a I trained him for a year for free. And then I got to Mary J. Blige at the same time. And that was the two checks Mary took me on the road. And that was the check that got me out the projects. And that was in 2000.
0: Wow. That's, I mean, that's just <laughs> incredible, the persistence that you had to do this. Like you said, you're literally broke living in the projects, like had no money, but you were just willing to do whatever it took clearly to be successful.
1: Yeah, yeah, I didn't have a backup. You know, I didn't have a plan B. And, um, you know, that was pretty much it. And I was very much enjoying every minute of it. You know, I enjoy every minute of it. I enjoyed the struggle getting up every morning. You know, I'd be sleeping on the train, You know, I would open the gym. Then I got got a job at Reebok Sports Club. I would open up at 5 a.m. after getting home at 12 because you can never get the sessions back and forth. But I was
0: just, like, in the hunt, enjoying the pursuit. You know what I mean? So would you say that your military – and you you kind of referenced it a couple times, like, your military experience, like, really gave this mindset and work ethic to you? It gave me a
1: reference point, you know, because, you know, I had then – by the time I got out the military, like I told you, you know, You know, you have groups of people you're in command of at a very young age. I had already thrown up squatting, you know, 400 pounds, drop set to 315, finished the second set, drop set (laughs) 225 the other set. I had already been through all of these hardcore, you know, running at 250, 10, 15 miles, you know, eight-minute miles. You know, I had already done all of this stuff. You know, I was so empowered from those lessons. I just was like, you know, if I could – just do it the same way to other things, I could win, you know, I could apply it.
0: Hmm. I I love that right there. And and I think so many people just out there in general are under the mindset like, well, you know, I want to do all this stuff, but, you know, how do I get started? Like, how do I actually build that type of discipline and success in my life? So what advice would you have to someone who feels like they're stuck and just waiting to break out?
1: Well, you're
0: going to find – You have to find
1: something that you're passionate about to obviously dedicate that type of fanatic fanatic (laughs) time and effort into it. So the first thing I would tell you to do is you always got to be on pursuit of finding your passion. Right. But in the meantime, you still have to do everything else that's going on in your life with that same tenacity, because that gives you time to find your purpose. You understand what I'm saying? So like if you're taking care of your health and you're working out, you're giving yourself more years. If you're reading, you're informing yourself. You're giving yourself more knowledge. So you, if you attack everything that way, because a lot of times there's a lot of people, I was very fortunate to find something that I was good at, because a lot of times it's your passion, but you're not good at it. A lot of people love to sing. They can't sing, though. No. Hmm. You know, so it's a combination. So, you know, we all have passions, but to find your, your expertise, you have to sometimes hone your discipline with your other activities. So when you find that, you can zero in on it. It takes what? They say 10,000 hours to become a master or something.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, so I'm going like maybe 40, 50,000 hours now.
0: That's true. You, you've clearly put in a lot of work and experience and, and gotten to, to where you are. today. But in the
1: meantime, you know, I was just going hard. I didn't know. I didn't have it all planned out. Like I told you, I was just like, oh, shit. I could I train the celebrities, but I was just going hard. This is what I'm telling you.
0: Love it, love it. And <laughs> so what were so from talking to all these, you know? Obviously, I'm sure from working with a lot of celebrities and CEOs and, and everything over the years, you know, you've mentioned some things already. But what are some of the like habits and mindsets and disciplines you've picked up from working with these people that you've applied to your own life?
1: Yeah,
0: it's definitely the same thing. Like you know, uh,
1: training D'Angelo was one of the most impactful, you know, uh, experiences because this guy, you know, is such a so so honed in on his art you know, above anything else and so zeroed in. Like a lot of my training style took on because I went from, I didn't, I didn't train athletes. I just immediately went from there to train a recording artist. I might have an athlete sprinkled in, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, in between, or I would have a budget and I would end up subcontracting pro athletes because I didn't have the expertise. So if somebody wanted to swim, we would go hire Olympic swim coach. We were both, you know. <laughs> do it like that which is cool about having the artist but they all have that focus and if you can take that with the artist and teach them to apply it to something else with fitness they can do incredible things because they already understand that zen state you know so that's the that's the cool thing about training artists they already they already know how to get into that space it's just to be directed whereas with a normal client you have to teach them sometimes how to even get into
0: that space Mm. so like for example like I know you've worked with like Beyonce and P. Diddy and a lot of other, you know, Mm -hmm. like, so when those people came to you and those, you know, clients, what was it like? Like, so it was a pretty easy transition to convince them to work. Like what were the biggest things you had to change with them?
1: Um, Beyonce was a 60 day intensive for a movie she was doing, trying to get in shape. So she was motivated Uh, very early on in her career. I was training her, so she was very motivated. Uh, Diddy. he, in fact, was texting on the Skytel pages they had back then, I think, every session. And I was like, oh, man, this guy's going to fire me any minute. He's not paying attention. And I had came up with a concept a few years ago of trying to get um, D'Angelo to run the marathon, raise money for public school systems or whatever. And uh, he was like, no. I shot shouted to Mary J. Blythe. She was like, no. And... um I shouted to Diddy, Uh, he was telling me how great he was, I think, or how fly he was on the treadmill. What a (laughs) renaissance man he was. What a renaissance man. And I was like, you know, a real renaissance man has a physical endeavor under their belt. I said, you can either run the Bulls or you can run the New York City Marathon. I have it on paper. And he was like, send it to me. Sent him on paper. (laughs) And uh, maybe two days later, we were running the marathon at MTV. (laughs) And all that stuff. And it was two or three months before the marathon. And I, we trained in uh, Central Pay. We trained in Ibiza. Because <laughs> he was, you know, all around the world doing Diddy. Right. And uh, we actually had Alberto Salazar and Nike helping us. Uh, Alberto Salazar is the, uh, was, somebody broke it. But at the time, he was the last American to win the New York City Marathon. Had the last rights pronounced on him twice. Uh, crossing the finish line. Hardcore. Ran heart hard stop twice. Basically. Hardcore dude. Uh, he, we had him coaching us, and, uh, you know, it was an incredible experience. We raised $2 million for the public school system. But, again, it was just me coming up with an idea. I was like, how can I reach uh, black people and get common people and everybody excited about health and fitness? I said, man, if I get one of these celebrities to run a marathon, that'll do it, or run the bulls, you know? I have yet to run the bulls, but I'm trying to convince okay. one. I always, Every celeb I get in touch with, they're like, nah, Mark, nah.
0: One of these days, right?
1: That could get dangerous. That could get dangerous.
0: Right. So, so this is like you said. Like clearly, you take action on these these ideas, and and a lot of people are stuck, like thinking about taking action, thinking about doing things. But you're someone who actually takes action, which clearly makes you different from everyone else, or from a lot of people. So, what do does someone need to do who like has an idea or concept in their head? to do all these things, need to do, whether it's getting in better shape, whether it's making a move in their career, to actually take action on something?
1: Well, most people actually don't act because they are too attached to failing. You know, if if you're attached to failing, then you're not going to act because you might fail. So you have to jump into things like whether you know you're going to work or not, whether it's not going to fail. If you think it's a good idea and it's something that motivates you, you don't see where it ends up see where it ends up, man. Don't be afraid to fail. That's the biggest thing. People don't try. Like, you know, I, uh, I, I never marketed my business like a conventional fitness thing. You know, I never marketed towards athletes, (laughs) you know, at the time when I was doing celebrity training like that was new. I didn't open a gym. Once I uh, got established as a celebrity trainer, I went on the road with Mary J. Blige and toured and I toured for the next, uh, The next, from 2000 to 2018, I toured with different artists all around the world building the brand and did classes and master classes and taught when everybody was like, open the gym, open the gym, open the gym. But I was like, you know what, if I open the gym, I'm gonna be stuck with just the people who are coming in the gym and capped off. I said, but if I go around the world, I can get to see the world. I can impact more people internationally. So when the technology caught up to me, I already had an international audience. You know, because this was before the web and the Instagram and all of that stuff. So I was already thinking, you know, that's why I named the company initially International Fitness and then went to Universal Wellness. Because I was already thinking, like, this is something that everybody should have access to. It's a human right. There's no way I should be living in a community where I have to walk two or three miles to get a piece of fruit. You know, it's food deserts. You know, a lot of there's no way I can walk to a candy store, but I can't get something natural to eat because my environment really shaped my obesity because it was no healthy, there was nothing healthy in the, in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. you know, so if you don't have a parent or something getting you into sports or fitness, you're not going to do it at that time. So, you know, it was, it, it all impacted me and I just, you know, ran with it.
0: Absolutely. And I think you just brought up an important point that I actually want to stay on for a second. So a lot of uh, people and kids like might not have access to all this stuff or, like, you know, may not be able to get food or get good food or get gym or memberships and things like that? Like, what are some things and I know that's something you're really big on is, is getting the community as a whole fit and healthy? Like, what are some things that maybe someone who's not going to pay for a personal training membership or doesn't have all the resources to get all the foods and all the, the resources? What can that person do? Or what can we do to help that person become healthier and, and better fit?
1: Um, One thing you can do as a a regular citizen is, you know, make sure you do your district and local uh, voting because those are where those decisions get made, where the food deserts are, where vending machines are in schools, the laws for that, what kind of food is in the vending machines, where they have the open markets, do they have community open markets, is this being allotted for organic garden in the community? Because those are the type of things that really make the difference between somebody having access to fresh fruit and vegetables or the organic gardens that are in the community and uh, you know, the nonprofit resources that are in the community. and Sometimes a lot of the city property that's allotted for that that people are not utilizing because they're not active in the community. Mm-hmm. So that's the best thing you can do is get active. You know, these community gardens can be all used for organic spaces so people can actually have access to fruit and vegetables. Because you, uh, you know, I, I lived in D.C. for a while. And DC, the nation's capital, has more food deserts than any other state in the United States. You know, so I literally was involved with the United Way in this program called Quant Flying Fit. We went to the schools and trained middle schools and trained to work with the kids like Wednesday was water Wednesday, you know, each day was branded with a healthy nutrient thing. And um, I was in the book, but you know, they literally, there's no fruit within two or three miles. You know, they have a hot lunch program, but a lot of parents are so poor on drugs, they're taking the kids' lunch, and these kids are getting a subpar education at the same time. So, could you imagine getting a subpar education as your blood sugar is dropping? <laughs> at the same time, you're not gonna absorb the information. What kind of hormonal imbalances are you gonna have later on because of that malnutrition? What kind of behavioral problems? What type of learning problems are you having because your blood sugar is dropping while you're trying to absorb this information? It's just bad societal nutrition, and then that becomes a taxpayer's burden because that person has a pre-existing condition before they even out of uh 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 before they even into full adulthood you yeah. know, and then there's no health care it becomes a situation, so it's it's much more important of an issue than people actually uh recognize you know
0: mm. I, I think that's really good insight on that because I think that's something that we don't really look at like we're maybe like oh we'll take some money to or take some food to the local food pantry but clearly there, there's more we can do as a society right it has
1: to be a it has to be something especially with uh it has to be something that we as societies but and homelessness as well you know everybody should have a right to have a home these things especially in a time with a pandemic you know that's going to be the thing that keeps re-infecting people is people being homeless and not having anywhere to go and not having healthcare. This is the thing that's going to really impact people. So now, you know, a lot of our, a lot of our lack of action is coming out to haunt us right now.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And and another uh, topic that um, I wanted to talk about you as well, um, that we talked about before was something that you've been very outspoken and a leader on is, is racial justice, which is something um, that more, has always been an issue, but something that's kind of come to the forefront more recently um, with the you know, horrendous killings of Aubrey, Aubrey, and George Floyd. And like I said, obviously, there have been countless others over the years. And I think a lot of people think like, you know, oh, I'm not racist. You know, things are getting a lot better. You know, people are overreacting. Um, you know, Mark, a couple of things. And like I said, I'll admit, like, this is something that I'm working on, learning more about as well. Um, a couple of things that you've talked about on your social media platforms, Mark, are systemic racism and microaggressions. So can you explain what systemic racism is and what is meant by microaggressions? Well, in
1: no way, shape or fashion am I the uh, expert on these issues. I can only tell you from my personal experience, but I can give you examples you know, that are, that are tangible that you can understand. like. Okay, here's an example of systemic racism so you can understand. You have the police who are, even while they're being documented, and they know their career is gonna get out the window. <laughs> it's gonna get thrown out the window. They're so angry or emboldened or privileged or whatever you wanna call it, where they put their foot or choke a man anyway or shoot somebody anyway, especially with all the coverage that's going on now, right? You take that type of intensity, and that type of hatred. And then you're a black person and you're applying for a loan. You have somebody with that same aggression who's in charge of giving you that loan. (laughs) Okay. You have a percentage of the white population who are just like that police officer, you know, and the statistics show black people are less likely to receive loans who are making the same income as their white counterparts. Then you go to the hospital, you have the White counterpart with that same intensity who's at the hospital, statistic support. Blacks are less likely to get pain medication and eight times more likely to get misdiagnosed. <laughs> and black women are eight times more likely to miscarriage.
2: Mm.
1: <laughs> then yeah. you have a, a, a sponsor where you're trying to get a supplement deal and you have somebody <laughs> with that same type of fervor. And then that's what systemic racism is. Then you have, on top of that, You might want to go to a museum and get peace of mind, and you see a statue of somebody who used to own your forefathers, and then you go in the museum of stolen artifacts from your land that you have to pay for to go view. Mm. Then you have to pay taxes like everybody else, but you don't have the same opportunities to make money like everybody else. And that is systemic racism. Everywhere you go, you're faced with people who have that level of hatred for you for no reason and who are impacting your life
0: because you can't ignore it, you know? Hmm. I think those are, are very good examples. And I know you mentioned- Now, a
1: microaggression? Yeah. Here's one that, that always kills me. You know, I'm an avid runner. I've been running. I run marathons. You know, I run for years. A microaggression is me running, four or five white people running side by side, <laughs> in opposite directions and none of them moving out the way. So I literally have to run off the street or run through them. And I'm a pretty big guy, but I just don't feel like getting to the confrontation. <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> or run through them to get, out, to get out the way. Or I got my running clothes on, I'm soaking with sweat. I got my headphones on, I'm cutting an eight minute mile. A white female runner sees me behind, sees me jogging behind her and jump scared and startled. Or you're running with your celebrity client, D'Angelo, let's say, for example, because him and I I think we have the most police stops. Because <laughs> we trained in Central Park at that time, so we probably have the record. You're running with your client through the park, everybody's running, police stop you. What are you doing? We're running. <laughs> Just like everybody else, we jogging in the park. The police don't even want you jogging in the park. You know what I mean? And you're jogging like everybody else at the same time. Even after I explain to them, I'm with a platinum recording artist right now.
2: Mm-hmm. Or oh, you know who this is? A lot of times they knew
1: who he was. Then they would follow us around the park.
0: Those are microaggressions. Hmm. I think that those are very good examples. And, and I, I want you to talk about a, some other examples too. So what are maybe a couple other examples in your life of when you've experienced racism?
1: Uh, it's constantly permeating uh, uh, meetings, you know, it's, it's constantly when you're trying to, when I'm trying to, even my career is a perfect example. There's no, there's no trainer with as many celebrity trainers on earth, living or dead. I can even go even further. There, there's no, there's, there, there's no trainer with as many A-list celebrities as I have on my roster, but most people never heard of me. Right. You have average white guy trainers you never heard of with TV shows. (laughs) Yeah. So that's the way racism will impact you. And I don't train for retention. I train for transformation. So every time you see a client, they're going from one situation to another, you know. Mm -hmm. So I have to work five or six times harder to be at the same position. People just, you know, jump out who don't have any fitness experience, never transform anyone or themselves for that matter. Mm-hmm. so it's a constant, you know?
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a, a very good point that you just brought up. And
1: you kidding me? Tr- being a, a celebrity trainer in that time, I was working, on, working in Central Park West and on the Upper East Side, before I could even tell the doorman who I wanted to see, they'd tell me the food delivery is in the back. Mm. Before I could even say, hey, because it was unfathomable that a, a brother would know someone <laughs> in the building that John Lennon got shot in the Dakota to go train. They tell me food is in the back, man. I said, No, no, wait a minute. It got to the point back then, I used to have to wear dress clothes to do my private training sessions because they would think I was robbing people or going to do some crimes. So I would have to actually put on slacks or shoes or casual dress stuff to go do my sessions through all that time I was in the process. Jeez. Well, I would have people following me in security, and these are real stories. I would have to ch- have a change of clothes. I couldn't even wear a sweatsuit at that time walking back and forth in those neighborhoods.
2: Hmm. So. (laughs) Could you imagine you can't, Uh, yeah,
0: uh, it's it's even hard to, you know. Okay, so. Me,
1: myself, with no criminal record, you know how many times I've been stopped by the police? Or, or, you know, I was in the Giuliani administration going uh, out from New York, but you know, all of this stuff, there was no cameras, you just be walking down the street, somebody throw you in a paddy wagon, man. You know, go for a veteran.
0: So a lot, lot of examples. So you gave a lot of examples, obviously, there that I, I think are just prevalent throughout our society. So what are things that we as a society can do to, you know, reduce or eliminate racism or things like that that happen? I don't think that you can reduce it.
1: I don't think that you can eliminate it. I think we have to be realistic. (laughs) You know, because when you tell, you know, it doesn't even matter what you're saying. When you say something that's contrary to what people think, immediately they want to go harder in the other direction. So, you know, to the racist, you're telling them how to think. No, I'm entitled to my own thoughts. If I don't think, you know what I mean? And that's what happens, you know, because they don't want to be forced to think some way. You can't force people to change their ideology or thinking. You can't explain that you're entitled to think the way you want to think, but when you start acting on it, that's when it becomes discriminatory. Mm-hmm. That's what I think realistically. I think you trying to convince people not to be racist, you know, you might get some, but those, that, that core group who's inherently, who's putting nooses in a, in a NASCAR driver in Bubba's locker, that's not going to stop. That's not going to sway them. You know, better yet, you can say, hey man, it might work better to say, hey, you're entitled to your opinion, you know, you just can't act on it. Mm -hmm. That might work better. But I don't think uh, it's too ingrained in um, American, It's, it's something that's been ingrained in American society. You know, after Brazil, we were the last country to end slavery. So we kept it going to the end other than Brazil and Brazil was last. Yeah.
0: That's you know, so. <laughs> globally, yeah.
1: you know what I mean? You know, it's, it's just something that we, uh, it's its uh, its attached. You know, people feel nothing about, you know, it's just like if you were a Jewish and there were statues of Hitler all around and swastikas and you're walking through Germany, you'd be pulling shit down and burning shit up too. Yeah. Okay, right? I mean, right or wrong. So, totally. you know, but yeah, totally. people have such a... They are such an inhuman, like, we're not human, so we're not supposed to have that type of reaction. But you would never do that to anybody else, any other nation, any other color. You wouldn't have a confederate flag of swastika and Hitler and all these other people, and then have these people, expect them to walk around and go to these public places to do business and services that they're paying taxes for? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's crazy.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a uh, great point that you just brought up and something that I... You know, think you know myself as a as a white person doesn't always even think about. But it's preposterous to even
1: it's, it's even to even to have the conversation. Just ask a Jewish person would they walk around? They say no. We don't care if we get arrested. We'll pull that shit down. They would they would doing the same thing. If, if somebody put a Hitler poster up right now and some swastikas all over.
0: Yeah, that's very fair point.
1: That's a no-brainer, right? I yeah. mean, so you know. We're, we're, but I, I, it's uh, it's it's very interesting. It, it's 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 very interesting. So I think you know it's better just to try to educate people and try not to force them. And uh, also because you know black people we're under no protection from the law. You know we're, we're out here getting killed, and the amount of wealth generated off of uh, theft of intellectual property and physical labor, there has to be some type of reparation or tax exemption, because. They're not able to the police Or the legislation They're not able to stop civilly These police from killing us They're not able to stop them They still do it with the cameras out It's not something they can control With these people So there has to be some type of uh, Financial And or or tax exemption compensation If you slip and fall You get paid more than what happens to black people every day (laughs) You know it's ridiculous There has to be And people have to start taking a hard look at if the, if the government can't protect your civil rights, why are you paying taxes? Perhaps you should just be, uh, make people give a, a percentage of tax exemption. <laughs> Since we're not getting everything that, And that's the way to solve it. So there's some type of equality in it because we're not getting protected by the law. There has to be some type of financial reparation. Again, how much money is Israel getting? These are human rights violations that the United Nations has already came down on the United States for. And said so there should be reparations. As per United Nations, we invade countries for the stuff, the atrocities that we commit on black people. And we've invaded countries for less mm-hmm. than what we're doing to black people every day for the last 400 years. We sanction countries for what we do to black people here in the United States every day, for what white people do. So just to put it in a global perspective, because you know, I've traveled the world <laughs> and our have friends all over the world from training. Like, you know, we invade countries for this type of stuff. These are human rights violations there's no country that has more human rights violations than the United States. You can all look, it's all Google. You can all look it up. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I, you know, I'm, i yeah, whoever out there is, has a claim to dispel with me. It's all, um, everything I said is supported by a uh, study, the healthcare, <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: the misdiagnosis. I'm just quoting facts and my personal experience.
0: I really appreciate you sharing that and sharing those facts. So, Let's say there's someone, you know, like, let's say someone in the white community, like, wants to be better educated on this topic or, you know, in any, any community wants to be better educated on this topic. What are some resources um, that can be found to better educate about these things?
1: You know, I think you just have a dialogue with a black person. I mean, you know, I've had, to, I've had to start having dialogues with people, with white people who are friends of mine, white guys that I was in war with. You know, I had one white guy, friend of mine, a shipmate, you know, we served together. He posted on his page. He goes, man, when we served, it was just, it was no color lines, man. We were all one color and it was all for one. And I had to hit him up personally. I said, dude, have you asked anyone black that you served with what the experience was or are you just putting that up? He said, there's no, there wasn't no racism. There wasn't any racism. I said, how would you know? You're white. (laughs) How would you know that? I said you have to ask people. You can't make those type of. And I had to have a talk with these guys and the guys in the military. I said, you know, I went through hell in the military as a black man in there in the eighties. They didn't even have women in when I was in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was no women, so you could imagine. You could imagine. This is, the, this, is the, this is the late eighties now. <laughs> I was catching hell. There was no videotapes. All kinds of shit was going on in the military. So I, you know, I just want to tell both stories. So, you know, I've had to have to talk with white. Guys and, uh, and white shipmates, white friends of mine explained to them, I said, you know, you know I know you're not racist <laughs> because, you know, we done been through Philippines fighting back to back <laughs> in sure, bars sure. together. You know what I'm saying? I know you my guy, but your perception on this whole racism thing, it might be off a little bit because you're not
2: black. You don't experience
1: it. Mm. You know, so that's a that's a big problem. I give you another example. I went to dinner with a friend of mine she has like the number one fascia stretching technique. Right? Uh, So I went with her, I went to her seminar. She had a seminar, I took the seminar because I wanted to learn how to break up the fascia for my clients. We all went to dinner afterwards. It was like, you know, some top fitness professionals in LA. I'm not gonna mention anybody's name. Sure. I was the only black guy there. (laughs) We're all around the table introducing each other, you know, uh, buff guys in there, white guy. He's like, you know, I'm doing yoga, I'm teaching this, I'm doing that. And this is maybe uh, this is maybe last year. This is maybe last year. And he go and I, said, and, and I goes, yeah, I'm teaching yoga in the community and whatnot. And I was like, yeah, you know. But he, he goes, what are you doing? I said, yeah, you know, I'm a celebrity trainer. I'm new to L.A. And I'm really looking to get fitness into the black community because, you know, it's such an underprivileged thing. And that's an undersegment under market I was talking to Sue about, you know, we're the biggest consumers and people will look to black people towards fitness The companies can actually make a lot of money because it's the most obese market, you know? So it's a big disconnect that also has to do with racism. Why the most obese market has less fitness advertising, but that's a different conversation. You're going to get to that. Yeah. <laughs> Cause there's so much you can get into. And so the guy, me, after me telling him that I said, I'm looking for some organizations, white guy, never known. We're sitting at dinner. Uh-huh. He goes, he goes, you know, fitness is important for everybody, not just for black people in the community. Fitness is for everybody.
2: Mm.
1: Now, it's the same thing as saying all lives matter. Sure. And this is last year, you know, it's the same shit. And so I'm at a dinner, I don't know anybody, but the person who invited me. And this is what black people are opposed with all the time. Do I blow up the whole dinner <laughs> by confronting this guy? And, go, and, and him and I going back and forth because I see we're both kind of alpha. or do I just let it go and have the dinner? And so, because I didn't want to mess it up <laughs> uh, for my girl, I just let it slide, you know. And, I, had, and, uh, and uh, I got home that night and I thought the guy and I were going to connect because he rode up to the dinner on his motorcycle. I rode up on my motorcycle. He was doing handstands, one-hand handstands super athlete uh, in the, uh, in the, at the workshop. And I was like, shit, I always want to learn how to do a handstand. So, you know, I was so keen, and uh, it just turned me off completely. I got home, I was like, shit, this guy's an asshole. So fast forward to now, today, and I was still following him on my Instagram because he was such a good athlete. I was still learning how to get the handstand information. Mm -hmm. So I was still following him on the gram. I should have unfollowed him. But, you know, fast forward today, Black Lives Matter, he said some shit like that on his Instagram and everybody's bashing him. <laughs> yeah. Why did you say that? He said he did the same thing, but he did it with the with currently the, what the issue is going on now. And I said, um, and I said, you know, something just compelled me. And I DM him and I said, you know, a year ago I had dinner with you and you did the same shit to me. Do you remember that? You said, Oh, <laughs> fitness matters for everybody. And uh, to his credit, <laughs> He said, yeah, man, you know, I'm trying to learn and do different, you know, sorry about that, you know. I said, dude, just hang out with a black person. Or, or you take your expertise in a black community. But, you know, it was an interesting experience, but that's how people feel, you know, and put his foot in his mouth at the same time. But, you know, I was wondering, I was like, man, could I have saved him all of that if I would have just checked him? Was it, you know, was that, did right. I do the right thing? You know, because you never know. Right. As a black person, you're like yo you want to fight it every time, but it's so exhausting you'd be fighting all day, so you gotta pick your battles
0: yeah, I'm sure that's so yeah so
1: it's you know it's 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 a, it's, it's a always a day to day thing it's every day every minute every time you leave something's going on
2: you don't you don't know
1: why something is happening is it because it's a genuine experience or is it because the person is racist hmm.
0: I think that's I really appreciate you sharing all those stories. And I, like you said, there are many, many more, um, and it's something that goes on every day. Um, and I know you have you know, a little bit of time left here and I want to make sure that we also talk about another, uh, topic that you brought up as well, which is getting fitness into the black community too is something that you, as you mentioned, like there's a lot of obesity and, and, you know, things that we can do as a society to help as well. So what are some things that you can, you and we as a society can do to help get fitness into the black community?
1: Uh, We have to make it accessible. There has to be fruit in places where uh, people can eat that have fruit, you know, within a mile's walking radius. You know, there has to be parks where there are recreation. There has to be community centers. There has to be a refunding of the community. You know, there has to be a relationship with the police so some of the kids can get into the police athletic league and it has to be that type of thing how it used to be where the kids used to go to the police athletic league and work out and the cops used to interface and the community has to take... You got to give the kids something to do. If you're not giving them any opportunity because you're discriminating (laughs) and you're not giving them any way to take out that anger because they're angry, Mm -hmm. it's going to lead to trouble. You have to give people activities, way to vent. They have to have meditation. People have to be able to have centers where they can just learn how to breathe, how to calm themselves down, how to de-stress. You know, our uh, life expectancy of black people is shortened because of the stress of racism. It's, uh, it kills us, literally, with hypertension, and obesity, because we're compensating with other things to get pleasure because of the painful experience in every day-to-day life. So, you know, uh, a lot of ways we can do it is just as a people, as a community of human beings being empathetic to what people are really going through. And talk to somebody Black. They might t- hip you to something you might get some insight on. But you know, people have microaggressions and don't even know it. A lot of times, as a Black person, you'll be speaking to a white woman and you'll tell them about racism, and they go, oh yeah, it's tough for a woman too. When you, that's a microaggression. <laughs> sure. When you neutralize someone else's suffering by starting to talk about yours, that's a microaggression. Mm. So. A lot of these things have to be relearned behavioral wise, but you can't change what's in somebody's heart. So better to teach them. You can feel that way, but you don't need to act on
0: it. Mm. I think. Really appreciate those perspectives. And, you know, something that I would love to, to continue to talk more about. I know you, we have to have to go here in a minute, but um, I want to finish with, uh, with two things. Um, First thing is, you know, after listening to you today, I'm sure a lot of people want to find out more information about you. So where can people find out more about you? Uh, MarkJenkinsFitness.com. You can check me out. You can get the book on
1: Amazon, uh, The Jump Off, 60 Days to a Hip-Hop Hard Body. That pretty much chronicles the whole story I told you about how I use fitness to empower myself to get out the projects. Uh, Jenkins on um, Twitter. DMark Jenkins on Instagram and um, mark jenkins fitness on facebook all right and you guys just dm me i answer all of my questions and i'm teaching free monday wednesday friday 12 p.m pacific 3 p.m eastern standard time so definitely come through check out the class chest shoulders triceps monday uh legs wednesday back and biceps on friday jump rope intervals in between so it's a
0: good push uh-huh. love it love it we'll link those in the show notes as well and then last question, Mark, is I always like to end on this one. When it's all said and done, how do you want to be remembered?
1: Uh, you know, as it's all said and done, I just want to be uh, recognizing somebody who went hard. Went hard and uh, a good dad.
0: Yep, those two are good. Went hard and good dad. Love yep. it.
1: Somebody went hard like, damn, that guy, he went hard, man. I got to give it to him. I, that's good enough for me
0: exactly (laughs) all right (laughs) all right Mark awesome really appreciate you sharing your insight today thank you man I
1: appreciate you thank you so much much